Welcome to the Bioengineering Podcast. This podcast is currently intended to promote and increase transparency between current, future, and prospective bioengineering students and faculty. This podcast is not directly affiliated with the UC San Diego Department of Bioengineering. The following is a conversation with UC San Diego bioengineering professor, Dr. Pedro Cabrales. Cabrales is a uh, faculty here in the bioengineering department at UCSD. Uh, he runs the Functional Cardiovascular Engineering Laboratory. Um, he hails from Colombia and did all of his studies there. Um, funny enough, I am not Colombian, but I have been to Colombia and I have been to Bogota. That seems to be where you did your studies and has been a recipient of a numerous prestigious awards. So, um, Dr. Cabrales, um, can you explain to the audience maybe your background and your journey in Colombia growing up, and then, you know, perhaps your journey to the United States and UCSD? Sounds good. I can do that. Um, thank you for the opportunity to in introduce myself uh, to the grad students. So, um, as, you, as you mentioned, I was born in Colombia. I, funny enough, I was born in a ranch, and my dad was a rancher. Uh, we, he grew cattle for, for uh, that was his business. And I have two brothers, and my poor, my, my poor mother raised three, three boys. And, and we, because there was no access to education in the ranch, we, were, we moved to a small city. And, and there I did my, you know, like my elementary school and, and, and high school. And during that time, my father was kidnapped and killed. Oh, and, wow. and so the, because the violence in the, in the area was, you know, like it was a, it was a huge problem. We, and, and he was not, no, no, the only person that was kidnapped and killed at the time. There was hundreds of people who were kidnapped and killed at the time, including like, including my other uncle. Um, and so to the, in fact, I had to say, the only people, in, the only males in my family that have not been kidnapped is my side of the family. So my two brothers and I, we have not been kidnapped. Any, every other male in my family has been kidnapped at least once. All in Colombia. Oh yeah, and in, from my family, the, my my bro, my dad had three brothers. Every single wow person, uh, and two of them died during the kidnapping. Um, the other two made it back. Um, but, and, uh, and uh, how old were you when your father was kidnapped? Twelve. Twelve, okay. Yeah, Six and so three. and we paid ransom for him twice, and we never got him back. Wow. And so so that was that was rough. That was rough mostly for my mom, because uh, then she had three, three boys to raise by herself. And because of that, then we stayed only for a few more years until I finished my high school. And then I was forced to move. We, we moved all to Bogota. So my two brothers who were still doing um, high school and they did their high school. They finished their high school in Bogota, but I got an opportunity to go to a university. And so I went to the University of Los Andes, which at the time it was mostly an engineering university, a private engineering university. But yeah, opposite of private universities in the States, he only cost like $800 a year to attend at the time. That's that very went. affordable. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we could, we could make it. Yeah. Um, and so I did mechanical and electrical engineering because you could do 
both majors that were kind of compatible. Sure. Um, and then when I graduate, um, they offered me the opportunity to do a master and then you can be like a teaching assistant and pay yourself your master by being a TA or and after you get some experience TA in courses then you could also teach a class and so I did that and and I worked okay so when I was an undergrad I did research in boiling regimes probably the, one of the boring most boring topics you can imagine because everything is empirical there is no equations and so it's like when uh, at what point a heat, the thesis was at what point a heating element produce transfer so much heat to the media around that there is no more heat transfer happening you create a, a steam layer mm -hmm. around the heating element and then mm -hmm. the heating element pretty much keeps heating up and it melts and it disintegrates and it's, that's called critical boiling and it was pretty boring so I got an opportunity to do an I needed to stay an extra an extra semester so I did another thesis on uh, kidney also, I yeah. first I work in, in boiling regimes, and so that was very boring. And then I decided to do uh, my second thesis in kidney tra transport. And so the reason that I decided to do that is because I, at that point I was diagnosed that I have an atrophy kidney, and so I wanted wanted to know what was going to happen to me with my atrophy kidney. So I talked to a professor, and he said, "Oh yeah, you should do this work in the dialysis unit in a hospital." And I did that, and. I, I worked in the dialysis unit for six, six months and started like figure try to create a model to find the how do you define for how long a person is connected to the dialysis mm -hmm. machine. At the time, they were only weighing the person, how much is the person weight at the beginning of the session, and after two hours they waited again and they say, "Oh, you lost two pounds, and that you need to lose three pounds in order to." to to get reach your dry weight dry weight mm -hmm. and so they had to be connected again for an extra hour and but the doctor said that's very primitive because it doesn't take into account a lot of things maybe you can figure something else by measuring a metabolites in the in in the blood of the person that are easy to quantify and so we did the model we measured many metabolites and we figured it out that billy rubin was the optimal metabolite to measure because if the and Billy Rubin is what gives the yellow color to the urine. Yes, yes. And so if the unit if the dialysis unit is working right, it's removing the Billy Rubin, that means it's removing the metabolite the other metabolites that are supposed to be removed. And so that that was what, what I did. And then they offered me to stay doing a master working on, on a different problem. And the problem was related to um, modeling abdominal aortic aneurysms. And so we I worked with a vascular surgeon who was fixing abdominal aortic aneurysms in uh, older people. And that surgery is a bloody, bloody surgery. So he, if, he's able, if he was able to complete the surgery, the people survive and did really well. But if the people were too fragile during the surgery, some mm. of them die. And right. it still is a problem now mm. that repairing an abdominal aortic aneurysm in a very senior person, the, re the risk of the surgery is very high and so he wanted to figure it out maybe he can we could do a computational model and figure it out if the aneurysm is going to rupture or not and if he's not going to rupture in the next six months maybe we can delay the surgery because there are you know it's an elder person 
there are maybe other reasons that the person is going to fail, doesn't need to fail in the surgery room. And we did that and we worked for like, I worked for like two or three years making like co first the computational models from the image, then mo modeling the flow, calculating the stress distribution. This is all during your master's? Yeah, studies. during the master's. And, and so we did, we com did full modeling for like eight or nine patients. And it was it was very advanced. We used like um, a supercomputer system that was available and did uh, a final element analysis and everything. But it was very slow. Even at the, this is this is twenty years ago or something like that. No, okay. so not twenty years ago, but uh, something like so. It's, it's a long time ago. FEA modeling was in yes. its infancy, or was it? Oh very... no, it's the computer power was the computers were very slow. Not not as powerful. So like the supercomputer at the moment was what is it, I think the name was the company was. A cray, and it was, you know, I think the computers that we have now, a laptop, will be more powerful <laughs> than that. Yeah. But uh, but it it took in order to model a um, single cardiac cycle, it took like three hours. Okay. And a cardiac cycle happens in a, a second and a little bit, and so the, it was pretty slow. But it was that was enough to you know to calculate this, uh, estimate the, the the stress distribution in the system and and see if the per the Oh, get the stress distribution. And since the model wasn't validated, everybody had to go through surgery because they have met the clinical criteria to get surgery. Right. And so they, the doctor did the surgery and the, the tissues that were removed from the uh, aneurysm, he gave them to me. And then we did tensile tests to see what was the stress that was going to rupture. And with those stress, rupture stress, we went back to the model and say, oh, this was only a... The, the stress, the maximum stress that they have was only 60% of the rupture stress. Uh, they could have, they, 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 it was an unnecessary surgery or was a necessary surgery. The surgeries were never postponed because that will be unethical because they have met the criteria. Mm -hmm. But at least it, 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 it kind of it, it helped to see if what the doctor believed it was uh, his intuition uh, that he could postpone the surgery or not was right. Or wrong, and we send that work for um, we submitted to a international vascular conference. First, it was in Lima, Peru, and then I went and presented there. And then I, I we also from there they say, oh, you should present it in the big conference that is going to happen this year in San Diego. And so I came to San Diego. Oh no way! And I met, and so I like. I did. Ne I would never thought about moving to the states, but when I came to San Diego and visited the zoo, you know, <laughs> Sea World, and all of those things, and it's like, and I stayed downtown for a week. It's like, ooh, I want to move there. This is the only place in the states where I will move. Um, wow. And then, and then I went back to Colombia because I was I was going to start my PhD there, and the project that they have for me was to make a oxygen carrier. Um, synthetic oxygen carrier and it was a project financed by the Colombian government because mm. there was so much violence and people were dying in the jungle and blood is no kind of viable to be used in the jungle because it needs refrigeration it doesn't sure. last very long yeah and so the idea was to make a fully synthetic oxygen carrier and so we started working on what, what it was what is called a perfluorocarbon emulsion that can de dissolve oxygen. It doesn't bind oxygen like hemoglobin, but dissolves a lot of oxygen. Mm -hmm. And we did that and um, you know for three years or four years we work on making a plan to emulsify the perfluorocarbon. Um, and then we the the model that we selected to test it was 
uh, cardiopulmonary bypass in dogs. So we used to prime the cardiopulmonary bypass system with the perforocarbon emulsion and then transfuse that the, or, or connect the animal to the, to, the, uh, to the CPV circuit and keep the animal alive for like four hours. And then the hard part was that I needed to monitor the dogs for like four hours afterwards and sometimes for 12 hours and it's a dog. And so it was, yeah. it was, it was yeah, I had a dog at the time and so it was kind of, it was difficult, but, uh, right. but it shows that the material was able to transport oxygen, kept the dogs sure. alive, oxygenate the tissue sure. and everything. Um, and based on that, I, the next step to evaluate the formulation was to see if it maintained blood flow. And so I came to San Diego to professors in Taglieta's lab to uh, here at the, the bioengineering department at UCSD to evaluate the, the perfluorocarbon emulsion that we were making in San Diego in his dorsal window hamster model where we could measure oxygen and see if it maintained the blood flow in the microcirculation. And that's how I came to San Diego. So at, at this point in your career, were you a visiting scholar or were you a postdoc? Or, I was or, a or... visiting. I was a visiting student. Yeah, I was. A, I was. A, I, I have not completed my PhD at the time. I see. Okay. And so that was part. Doing the evaluation in the hamster was like the last chapter for my thesis yeah. or my PhD. Yeah. Um, and so I I did that and and we did the experiments and it showed it works and and it was fantastic. But I was very excited because in San Diego. There was a pharmaceutical company that was financed by Johnson & Johnson making perfluorocarbon emulsion. Mm. And it was less than a mile from UCSD. In fact, it's in the green building where FedEx is in Genesee, oh, like the pyramid-shaped yeah, building. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the company was called Alliance Pharmaceutical. But even I complete my, my PhD, it's like, oh, I'm going to apply for a job there. And I saw in the news that Johnson & Johnson removed the funding from the company and the company went under. And so I decided to uh, stay in, the, in, 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 in Taglieta's lab and do my postdoctoral work there in microcirculation. Um, after that, I went to work in a research institute, La Jolla Bioengineering Institute, and I worked in um, trauma. Um, it, it, there was a project supported by the Department of Defense and by the National Institute of Health in malaria. So mm. I learned you know, infectious diseases, sure. created a window to look at the microcirculation because that's where I trained in my PhD to look at the microcirculation in the brain and uh, during cerebral malaria, uh, working in hemorrhagic shock, making resuscitation uh, alternatives to blood. And in 2009, I applied for a position in the bioengineering department. That's how I got as a, got hired in, in the bioengineering department. And from there on, I, we're going to 11, 12, 12, almost 14 years. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this year is 14 years. Wow. And so um, the lab, uh, uh, maybe this um, the current state of the lab and the functional cardiovascular lab. So what do you guys do? Is it very, is it uh, similar to your PhD work, your postdoc work? It's or? a combination of everything. everything it's a yeah. combination of everything. We do microcirculation, we do hemoglobin-based oxygen carriers, and we do perfluorocarbon-based oxygen carriers. We also do cerebral malaria and, and cerebral, like micro perfusion in the brain. Sure. Um, and we, we now we're expanding from like brain traumatic injury, which is kind of what we have been doing before. And now we're looking at Parkinson's disease, how okay. Parkinson affects perfusion in the brain and see maybe 
we can use perfusion in the brain as an early diagnostic tool for Parkinson's because normally the neurological manifestation take longer kind of the functional adjustments that are happening in the brain uh, during Parkinson's disease um, that's like sponsored by the Michael J. Fox Foundation mm. and we'll keep working strongly in making artificial blood um, so we have a large grant that is probably going to be sponsored by the Department of Defense to do a, a um, develop a hemoglobin-based oxygen carrier that will end up in the field in four years if that works. Yeah. And there are like like um, pharmaceutical partners and everything. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing your story. Uh, that was a really amazing story to get here and to get where you are today. So uh, I appreciate that. I guess we can um, spend the next few minutes talking about maybe a little bit, uh, a few, maybe a few lighthearted things. Um, I, it's been brought to my attention you uh, enjoy cooking. So, what, what, I mean, cooking is a very general and broad term. What what type of cooking so are we talking about? So my mother was a horrible cook, and hopefully <laughs> she doesn't listen to this. But she wasn't she wasn't good uh, a good cook. So everybody in my fa- in my family, we all cook. To different degrees but I, I like cooking and so um i read cooking books in fact every night before i go to bed oh wow there is yeah there is my wife prohibited me from buying another cooking book so now i buy them in in kindle version <laughs> uh yeah like and and two days ago my ipad died and i almost have a heart attack even because i all my books were gone from that day but uh, i would yeah i got one of those uh problems that uh the iPads get that they go into the boot loop. Mm-hmm. Don't don't get me there. I get hypertensive. Yeah, sure. Just thinking about <laughs> it. And so, but no, but I, I read cooking books and I try to cook uh, like every day or when my like, wife lets me. She also cooks, but uh, but I try to do most of the cooking. At least like I have for sure the mornings are mine. I make breakfast for the kids, and yeah, they get like three items to pick from. And, like it could be waffles, it could be pancakes. Or it could be eggs, um, yeah. And I, I, I take it to, to the, I take cooking to the limit. And so, like, I go into stages, and and I do, I, I try to study cooking books from different regions in the world. Not oh, necessarily, nice. yeah. Like, because you, know, you can learn from people from what they eat, you know, a, a lot of that. And so you can learn from like, you know, Chinese cooking, and the all the different regions have different mm-hmm. uh, ingredients and preparations. Mid, the Middle East, the same thing. The set of ingre- basic ingredients are very similar, but how everybody prepares their food the delivery, is, right? is very different because yeah. it depends on what they have available and the, the resources that they have available, the weather and many other things. And like, oh, what cultural preferences and so, yeah. So I have to ask um, two questions. One, uh, do you ever get hungry reading cookbooks at night? No. <laughs> no, I, in fact, I don't follow the books. It's like, this is one of those things. I read the book because it's a good distraction. Yeah. But I never follow, a, I, ex, you know, there are some exceptions, but very few times I follow the recipe of a book. Gotcha. And I try to just branch out for what I, the recipe that I read and kind of make it my own. Yeah. And there are things that I make multiple times, but I never make it the same way. Gotcha. And so, and so, um, with this hobby of yours, do you ever see parallels with yourself cooking and perhaps yourself in your career? Like, oh yeah. So yeah, a lot. 
yeah so i i beside you know i i I try to take my cooking like very professional and you know thermometers and things like that but uh, I tried the molecular gastronomy but it's I, I think you have to cook really really well to make something in like that in the molecular gastronomy side that tastes good besides looking good it molecular look, gastronomy yeah it's like it's like it's a, I believe it's probably like a new trend it's not a new trend probably the last 10 years but people who use like like physical and chemical principles to make the food <laughs> optimal wow. and like they also do like biochemical modifications or bring synthetic components into the kitchen in order to make the food like look pretty i think in san diego there's only like one or two and and they tend to be very expensive like and and yeah uh, but like yeah so okay okay well uh, but but yeah like i in, in uh, i take i take yeah i do I, at home, I make my own bread. I have created my own yeast strain for the bread, like what people call a sourdough. Yeah. But I did it with the apples. I have we have an apple tree, um, and the apples have the yeast on the skin, and so we harvest. I harvest the yeast from the skin and make the yeast to wow. make the bread, and it works. It works. I, awesome. I didn't bring the bread, but I should bring. I, I bring you a sample of bread. When yeah, that'd taste. be awesome. Wow. Yeah. Well, it's a perfect segue into the last topic of the day, and that's the best and worst home brews. Once again, it was brought to my attention that you like to brew your own beer or try to brew your own beer. So, what what has that process been like? When did you start doing that? Do you do you still do it? Do you enjoy it? Yeah. yeah. So now I don't need to get visas to travel because I'm an American citizen. But in 2007, I was going to a conference in Japan and I went to Los Angeles to get a visa and in the way back I was hungry I was driving back and I was hungry I stopped at Pizza Por I think in Cenitas and I tried like one West Coast IPA I believe it's Blind Peak made by Russian River and that thing was so good I was like I had to learn how to make this uh. beer I bought a growler I took it home I believe I was probably drunk by three but uh <laughs> But uh, but but independently of that, I start. That was 2007. I tried to learn how to brew, and uh, but probably by two three years later, I, I was pretty decent at it. Um, and so I I brewed at least twice a month, and more during COVID because alcohol consumption increased during COVID. Yes, yeah, so we all know that. Yes. <laughs> And so, yeah, I did that, and I also in, during COVID, I increased the number of styles of beer. I normally make, I like dark beers, so I make like stouts and porters, and I make light beers, you know, blondes and, 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 and wheat beers. But uh, during COVID, I started making lagers, like cold fermented beer, and set up like a fermenter, temperature control, uh, carbon dioxide control to just to do it under pressure. And in fact, I took ideas from uh, Professor Bernard Paulson, who studies directed evolution, and you can evolve your own yeast. Mm -hmm. You know, slowly warm up the, the beer and increase the pressure to adjust the environment so they can, uh, mm. they keep making your beer tasty, like a lager, clean and clean and flavorful, without producing all the esters and things like that, but without using that much refrigeration. And uh, yeah, so my worst beer, yeah. worst worst beer, beer. Yeah. worst beer. Oh, I think I tried to make a um, sour, and it went really bad. It was no, it wasn't even sour. It was just disgusting. It smelled <laughs> disgusting. I, I guess I submitted for competition, and the reviews that I got, it was like it, it smelled something that came out of a toilet. 
And so that was pretty bad. And so I don't know if it was the sour processes or they had contamination in the beer, but it ended up really bad. And so, yeah, no, the, and, and beers that I like, and I normally make dark, uh, like stouts and, and, and porters, and I keep my recipe kind of consistent, but every time I always change it a little bit. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't, the recipe is only a guidelines to know how much water I need to Sure. and the temperatures but uh, the grains I try to have what I have available in the garage and things like that sure yeah I have a, a, a ca- captive audience for the beer I also try to like to drink a lot so that's a p- bad thing for me and so I try to make low alcohol oh. so with age I have gone from being making 6% beers to now I make 3% alcohol so it's, but it's, new, deep. it's uh, nutrition friendlier Yes, nutrition <laughs> friendly, friendly and, and it doesn't, yeah, I can still have four or five without feeling sick. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, and yeah, so then that also, because of that, because of the low alcohol, I have a captive audience in my, um, some friends and, and, and relatives that are, you know, reaching their 60s and 70s, so they take the, they take the beer home, which is not that strong, so they can have it and they don't. So this is what you'll be doing um, full time after you retire. I don't know. I don't know if I will do that. I will do this. It's getting more complicated. I don't. I think I, it's it's too demanding. You know, like when at a certain point I thought I should open a restaurant. Yeah. And so I bought a book that I still have it at home. Is um, restaurant how to open a restaurant for dummies, and I read like the first chapters. And they say that you know if you want to open a restaurant, I can imagine if you want to open a brew pub, you you have to follow the same these two things you have to be really good at conversation i probably i have that i can talk to anybody but you also have to be really good at holding your alcohol or don't (laughs) drink too much and i have a bad problem with those two things so gotcha yeah so well that was that was great well thank you for sharing all your hobbies and um your academic journey and uh how you ended up at ucsd and kind of what your lab does in principle um, we can be effectively finished, but I mean, do you have any parting words to the listeners regarding academics, you know, your journey, cooking? Oh yeah. If you want to know more about me, I'm having, I, I teach, I have the seminar this quarter. I believe it's week eight or March 10 is the seminar for the department, the Friday seminar. Okay. It's not going to be high, too much science, but probably you get to learn, learn more about the, what we do in the in the lab the different things that we do in the lab okay and 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 my journey uh, in there too yeah okay sounds good um yeah well thank you so much i really appreciate it thank you so much for the opportunity